1 Thessalonians. So we learned last week that the Thessalonian church, whether you want to call it the Thessalonian church or the Thessalonican church, doesn't really matter. The point is, is that this church is a place, it's a group of people, and anytime you see the word church in the Bible, I don't want you to think about a building. We have to get rid of that idea. And I say that as I was listening to a man teach the Bible this week. He was teaching 1 Corinthians. He was, he was talking about the, the spiritual gifts. And he said these, these spiritual gifts should be assigned to unbelievers so that when they're around the church or in the church, that they would be convicted, that their lives would be laid on display before them. They'd be convicted about their lives if they don't know the Lord and they're not walking with Him. And what he said was, now we think about this as non-believers coming to a church and praise the Lord when that happens and they hear the word of God taught for the first time. That's my testimony. I showed it at a church. I had been spoken to first though about the word of God and about Jesus and how he was displayed in all the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Holy Spirit was the one convicting me. But when he says that this will happen inside the context of the church, he wasn't talking about a building. He meant when a group of people are gathered together in Jesus' name, when there's people that know Jesus out in the community and others interact with them, there should be these gifts exercised. And so when he talks to this Thessalonian church and he writes to them, he says to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to because they didn't have a church building, more than likely, a called-out assembly, an ecclesia. And this called-out of assembly of people is a, an assembly of a group of people that have been called out of the darkness and into the light. They've had their sins and their unlawful deeds exposed, and they, they want to know how to walk in the light. And so Jesus is the light of the world. He comes alongside, and he, he does that for us. He opens up our eyes, and then he says, Take up your cross, deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. And so it begins this new lifestyle, this new way of walking by faith and not by sight. We're not following our lusts, our desires anymore. We're not doing what we want to do. We're doing what the Lord would have us do. And as we do that, there are lots of changes that come along the way as fruit of us being in God the Father, as he says, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now his possession his people. We're called out. We're not just called out of the darkness and then just hanging out in limbo. We're called out of the darkness and into the kingdom of God. And so he writes to them, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from verse 2, all the way through verse 10 of the first chapter, he explains and he describes what they are currently doing. He's giving thanks to God in prayer, and he says, I pray without ceasing for you, giving thanks to the Lord for all of these things. And he lists out these things, and it's what I want you to notice as we read through them again, for posterity's sake, that as we read through it, I want you to notice that it's, it's really how every church should be. He commends them. He gives thanks. He lists some things that they are doing and things that they are, uh, are evidenced in their lives. And he, as he lists them, I want to point out to you that they're just evidences that they are truly, not just in word, but they are actually in Christ. If you are in Christ, old things have gone away, and behold, all things have been made new. 
So if that is the case, your life should look like that. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you're a heavenly citizen, your life should look different than citizens of this earth. And I talked last week a little bit about how we have a home address in heaven, and we have a business address. We are to continue doing the business of the Lord until he returns, and that's a big theme in this book. So he says in verse 2, We give thanks to God, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He is assured of their election. He's assured that they have been called by God out of the darkness into the light, and he's assured of that, not just because they profess to be believers, but because he sees the results of that in their lives. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, you love the brethren, you're serving one another, and your patience of hope as you await the return of Jesus. And so think about this. Paul had only been in the Thessalonian area and planted the gospel there and shared it with this group of people. Many had become believers in a period of about what it says is three Sabbaths in Acts chapter 16. So during his three Sabbaths there, however long that was, I'm going to assume it was three weeks, he taught them some pretty incredible amounts of doctrine, one of which is the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is encouraging to the Thessalonian church in particular because they're experiencing persecution. When Paul went there and shared the gospel, those who started believing experienced persecution. It was so bad that Paul actually had to leave so that the heat would kind of settle down a little bit and they could go on about their lives and live out their faith in the the community they lived in. But what they did was they drug Paul into the the center of town and they said, hey, this guy is teaching things and calling us to believe things that are unlawful for us as Roman citizens. And Roman citizens were called to worship Caesar. Not to just say, hey, I'm going to put my bumper sticker on my car but to worship him, to worship this man who was not godly at all. So anybody who believed in different gods in the Roman Empire, that's fine. But if you start following Jesus, Jesus says, there's no other gods but me. And so you can't worship Caesar anymore. That's a problem. You can worship all kinds of other gods and Caesar. Caesar's got no problem with that. But Jesus calls people to worship only him. And we see that evidenced when he goes on a little further here. He says in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. He points them not only to what they said, but how they conducted themselves in Thessalonica. And then in verse 6 he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all those who are in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia, which was the region they were in, and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols 
to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So their faith is so real to them that everyone knows about it. Imagine Paul leaving this place and going to another region and then coming back on another missionary journey. This is how I imagine what he's saying here. He comes back and he's getting ready to share the gospel and they go, we've already heard it. Who told you? Uh, Some people from Thessalonica came over. Really? Awesome. Praise the Lord. Because faith begets faith. And sometimes I think what happens is that people who come to know Jesus They feel like, hey, I don't have to share my faith. There's churches everywhere. There's pastors that are called to that. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have this good news. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure that's been placed inside of us. And as we are jars of clay with broken pieces and we're not perfect, through our cracks, through our weaknesses, the gospel shines forth. We tell people we trust in Jesus and they see that we're a failure, we're not perfect, and they go, wait, I can actually relate to that person. If they can trust Jesus and God's transformed their lives, perhaps he can do a work in me. That's good news. You know, they can look at you and go, wow, that guy's not perfect. And we don't like that. Like we put off a persona like we've got it all together. Sometimes we just need to be who we are, be real. Paul says here, I was real with you guys. I was was genuine. I, I came to you sharing this message of hope because I've first been a receiver of this message. You know, if someone were to receive a a cure for all cancer and, and they experienced it and it changed their lives physically, I guarantee they'd have a billboard up that says, come to my house, I have the cure for cancer. They'd do everything they could to tell other people about it. But we have this spiritual cure for cancer. In many cases, we have this living God that can actually heal people. And yet, many times we clam up because we're afraid of what people will think. And Paul says, even though you received this gospel message and your lives have changed and you received it in affliction and experienced persecution, the gospel went forth anyway. You have this hope that goes beyond this life. And I love this because I was thinking about this and you, know, you guys know that are with us all the time that my hobby horse lately has been uh, the parable of the sower. And we read the parable of the sower when we were studying um, one of the previous books, and I talked about the cares of the world that kind of choke us out. Well, I'm going to read this again in Mark chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus ex- explaining the parable of the sower to his disciples, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? And then in verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. And he talked about this sower going out and sowing seed. Of course, they're in an agrarian society, so they all knew what it meant to sow seed, to prepare the ground, and then for it to come up and to grow and bear fruit. And so they knew what he was talking about, and so he gave an example of all these different types of soil that seed can land on. And he says, the sower sows the word, so the seed, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. They hear, Satan comes in immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So he talks about the stony ground where the seed would land on our parking lot. And instead of growing anything or taking root, these birds would come along and eat it. So it's kind of wasted seed, you would feel like. 
He says this is like when the seed of God, the word of God, lands on our hearts. It doesn't go down in because we have hard hearts. And then Satan comes in real quickly and steals it away, and it doesn't produce any fruit. Verse 16, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so they only endure for a short time. Well, this is the one I want to talk about because we think about the stony ground, we think about the parking lot. But in Israel, there is land, and a lot of it is this way, where you sow seed on the ground. It looks like it's great farming soil, but it's stony. It's got lots of rocks in it. Can we relate to that? You know, in our valley, we don't have a whole lot of good, fertile, rich soil to grow things in, so we kind of grow it around the granite. You know, we grow it around the rock. And so you sow that seed on the ground, and then it takes root, and it grows, like, real quick. We did a garden a couple years ago. Like, it shot up. Like, man, this is going to be good year for tomatoes. And then all of a sudden, the, the plants get to about this tall, and then this time of year comes. Here we are in, in July, and all of a sudden, the heat hits. And what happens? The plants burn up. Well, wait a minute. I'm watering the thing every day. Well, the, the, the roots aren't deep enough to keep it going even when it's super hot, and, and they burn up. There's no tomatoes. There's just a bunch of green dying plants that were like, what a waste of time. And then the weeds are a whole nother story. But my point is, is that here we are in Thessalonia. He's sown the seed of the word, and there's this explosive growth. And, and I can imagine Paul praying for them going, I've seen this before. I've seen people receive the word and sprout up, and I trust Jesus, and then they quit. And why is that? Well, many times it's because there's no root. But Paul is giving thanks in the beginning of this letter because he's not seeing them wilt. He's not seeing them dry up. He's not seeing the fruit not produce. What he's seeing is fruit. This is good news. He says, I've not sown this gospel to you in vain. You've continued in it. You're not giving up because of persecution. So I I tell you that because when you go down to verse 20 in this same passage, he says, But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, receive it or accept it, and then they bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100. So in Thessalonia, he's like, praise the Lord, we got a crop that's going to produce fruit. And if I can tell you anything about a as being a pastor and as trying to, to continually weed the garden and continually sow seed... When there's fruit produced, it is one of the most enjoyable experiences, but one of the least enjoyable experiences. One of the heartbreaking experiences is when somebody says, I believe in Jesus, and they say, I want to be baptized, and then they, they want to make all these steps, and they're making all these changes in their lives, and it's explosive growth. It's like, praise the Lord, and then because of persecution or because of discouragement because God doesn't do everything that they want him to do. They give up. They leave. So it's one of the most disheartening things. And if you've ever shared the gospel, if you've ever led someone to the Lord, if you've ever, like me, baptized somebody, it's the most disheartening thing ever because they continue on and they don't walk with the Lord anymore. And, you, and yet if you ask them, hey, you think, you think you're going to heaven? They'll go, yeah, absolutely. I was baptized on September 18, 2001, and, and this is what was going on, and, you know, and, and you're like, but there's no fruit. 
are you really in Jesus Christ? So Paul's over, overjoyed here because there is fruit. That's what I want to say. That there's, there's fruit proving that their roots are actually in Jesus. And so he's excited. But here's what happened. Paul was there for three weeks, shared the gospel, planted this church. They've, they're growing. Their faith is known all about their region. People are getting saved. And what happens? People come in behind Paul and they go, you know that Paul, he's a good guy and all. Don't get me wrong. Um, but he really just came here to take your money. And, uh, you know, what he taught you isn't really true. And so you need to follow us now. You need to believe what we're going to tell you. He was just a charlatan. He was just here to line his pockets and leave. <laughs> so what are they trying to do? They're trying to disarm the gospel message by really just throwing the messenger under the bus and trying to discredit him. And so that's a danger that's always the case. Satan wants to come in and, and to stop the work that God has started. But he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what do we believe? Well, Paul's getting ready to tell them, I want you to consider the way I was with you when I was with you and how I delivered the message. Because the message is important, don't get me wrong, but how it's, how it's delivered is also very important but it, because it can discredit the message. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he appeals to them. You, you know what an appeal is? We have appeal courts. If somebody goes to trial against someone and they don't like the way that the trial pans out, they go, well, I appeal to the next higher level. So in this case, uh, Paul's going to appeal. He's going to be his own defense attorney, but his defense is not some new evidence. It's actually going to be the evidence of how he conducted himself when he was with them. He says, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to, the, to, speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. He's referring to the church that they had planted before they came to Thessalonia. He's referring to this, what we led, read last week in Acts, in Acts, either 15 or 16, where Paul went to the Philippian church, or he went to Macedonia. He arrives in the city of Philippi. He shares the gospel, and there are many who are saved. And then he kind of plants a little church at the riverside there. Lydia from Thyatira is there, and she takes them into their home, and they start having gatherings there, and he stays for a while, and he, he shares the truths about Jesus, and he teaches them about salvation and walking in the Spirit, and as he's there, there's persecution. Because of the message that he shares, because of a demon-possessed woman that he calls the demon out, she's no longer able to tell fortunes, and so therefore they're not able to make money off her anymore. And so they take Paul and Silas, and they throw them in jail. They're in jail for sharing the truth. And because of that, you would think that they'd be disheartened and they'd want to quit. But while they're in the jail, they were, they're worshiping. They're singing praises to the Lord. They're thankful that they've been given the opportunity to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so as a result of that, as they worship and as they're trusting the Lord, even though the situation looks dim, God shakes the entire prison. The doors are opened. Their chains are loosed. They're free men. They're in prison, but they're set free. And so they're just showing that positionally they are free. They're free. No matter what God allows into their life, we are free indeed because of what Christ has done. 
No matter what men can do to us, no matter what situations or circumstances happen, we're still free, positionally. And so, because of that, this Roman guard who is about to kill himself, because if these prisoners all get free, the Roman government's going to kill him. Hey, here's your paycheck on a good week, but if you mess up, we're going to kill you. Great job, right? Thanks for those benefits. <laughs> we're with you today, but maybe not tomorrow. But what happens is that they tell him, hey, don't do that to yourself. We're all still in the prison. We haven't run away. We know that this could cost you your life. And because of that, that man, that Roman guard says, hey, what must I do to be saved? And so as a result of that, he's saved in his whole household, and there's all these Gentiles coming to know the Lord. So as they leave Philippi, long story short, some other things happen, but they leave and they continue on. They go and plant another church. Many people, when they are called by God to do something, and they go out and it gets hard, they quit. Paul wasn't that way. He was assured by God, keep going, keep pressing on. And, and, and the Lord kept confirming that that was what they were called to do. So as they had suffered before, and they were spitefully treated at Philippi, he says, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God even though we were in much conflict. And the word there, conflict, means that they had to wrestle. They wanted to quit. I think that Paul had an inward struggle. This is too hard. I don't know if we should stay. And actually, I wrote in my Bible here, the word for conflict means a contention or a struggle. So just because Paul was such a fruitful man in ministry does not mean his life was easy. It was a struggle. It was a conflict. It was a battle. Verse 3, he says, our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness. Now, the word there means impurity, nor was it in deceit. They're questioning his motives for sharing the gospel. So Paul says we, we weren't sharing the gospel for impure motives. <laughs> but as we have been approved by God, we've been tested and found approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not to please men, but God, we want to please Him. He is the one who tests our hearts. You know, if God's ever called you to do something, or if He's ever uh, told you to go and, and do something or given you a task, and you've started to do it, you know as well as I do that when it gets hard, that really tests whether or not you really feel called to do it. Does that make sense? If you try to do something and it gets hard, it causes you to go, hey, do I really want to do this? Am I really supposed to be doing this? And it, and it causes you to question whether or not you're actually in the will of God. And it should. He says God tests our hearts. And so if they were doing it for the wrong reasons, they would have quit. I guarantee it. You know. And I thought about that this week as I was praying through the scripture and as I was thinking about my own personal walk with the Lord. God called us to move down here four years ago, or three and a half years ago, or whatever it was. And my motives got tested in that, and they do weekly, by the way. But what's interesting is, as it's gotten harder in many cases, and in many cases, God's freed me up when I'm tested. You know, when I don't have enough time to do the thing that I really feel like I need to have time to do, sometimes the Lord says, you don't need that. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Let that thing go from your life. It's not for you anymore you know. But many times when we moved down here, we got tested in that. Are we really called to be here? And I remember a time where um, we were off on a retreat, my wife and I, 
And uh, God gave us an opportunity to minister in another area. And so we prayed about it. Because our first instance, I don't know about you guys, I'm hard-headed. And so when I'm going in a direction, if somebody says, hey, why don't you come over here? I'm like, no. And I just kind of keep pressing on, even though it may not even make any sense. Um, But the thing was, is as we prayed through it, God actually confirmed, "I, I want you to stay here. I know it's hard. Stay anyway. This is where I have you. And if God's called you to do something that's hard, and he confirms that over and over again, stay there because he's going to refine you through that process. He's going to show you what you're made of. He's going to show you how weak you truly are. But then, in your weakness, he's going to make up for those weaknesses. He's going to show you that he is to be the foundation, not your own willpower, not your own pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but he's going to say, hey, I know you're weak, and that's why I've called you to do this, because you actually know that you're weak. And now, in your weakness, I'm going to show the world that I'm strong. And so Paul says, we were refined. We were, the, the heat was turned up, and all the nastiness came out, and we're still here. We haven't quit. So he says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. Our presenting the gospel to you was not smoke and mirrors so that we could covet your goods or your, what you had to offer us. He says, God is our witness. You want a witness that's for us instead of the witness that's against us? God is our witness. You want to you know where, where our hearts stand? Speak to him about it. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. He says, we didn't demand anything from you. We're stewards of this message because of what God has given us to do. We've been faithful. Verse 7, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the message of the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Think about this for a minute. As a nursing mother, Paul's just compared himself to a nursing mother. Now, many people look at Paul and they call him a chauvinist because of other things that he said. But think about this. He is lifting up the position of a mother who cherishes and nourishes her children. Now, as having a wife who has raised our children and has nourished them, whether it's a a breastfeeding mother or whether it's one that just is up all night with a sick child, Um, it's a care like no man can give. There is grace and patience and just a love that I've never seen before. I I like sleep. I don't know about you guys. Some of you guys like sleep. Um, My wife loves her sleep, but she will give it up for her children. And, you know, that seems like a simple thing, but it, it is a sacrificing love. And it is a love that nourishes and grows our children to this day. But he says, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother who cherishes their own children. Think about this. How does a mother nourish her children through feeding them in the early stages of life? She has to eat. And many times she has to eat more than she normally would. She has to nourish her own body that by God's design takes that nourishment and actually translates it and converts it into a nourishment that babies can receive, milk. If the mom eats junk, 
the children can get nourished by junk and get sick. If the mom eats good foods, and many times there's all of a sudden this desire to eat like stuff that we would never eat, you're eating these things because your body craves these nutrients that your baby needs. And so how cool is that? The Lord has designed the body so that the body has to intake more and converts it to be able to feed the child. So in the same way as believers, and Paul says this as a nursing mother, he has to actually eat too. He has to eat more so that he can feed those who are being discipled by him. As a pastor, I have to eat, I have to double my caloric intake spiritually. Otherwise, you know what I do? I feed you guys and then I'm starving. So I have to eat more. But here's the deal. I have to eat well. I have to eat good spiritual food because if I don't, what I translate through me is going to feed you guys and it's going to be poison. It'll make you sick. And everyone that's ever nursed a child knows that there are certain foods, if you eat them, the baby gets sick. And you're like, and, and I remember all the conversations. I wonder if it was this. I never ate that before. And I wonder, and I, and I was like, I don't even know. Like, I, I just ate a cheeseburger. I don't have to worry about that. I'm tired of talking about it. You know, we start logging what we're eating. And, and anyway, my point is, Paul was eating good spiritual food, and he was feeding and nourishing as believers, it's not just for the pastor. We have to nourish ourselves with the milk of the word so that we may become mature and be able to partake of meat. Christians aren't supposed to stay on milk. The salvation is a wonderful doctrine, but there is more to the Christian life than just salvation and the message of trusting in Jesus for the first time. We need to learn to walk. Paul says, as a mother, we raise up children. And so he says, that's how I conducted myself among you guys. Verse 9, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil. He says, this is how we conducted ourselves. They say that we were trying to get your money, but here's how we conducted ourselves. Laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Verse 8, he uh, reemphasizes this. He says there in verse 8, verse 7, really, You yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. He's talking about the fact that he was a tent maker. When he was with the Thessalonians, he was also with a couple of other people. And they were all tent makers. And as they shared the gospel and as they taught people the, the basic doctrines of the faith while, during the day, then Paul would, exhausted, stay up all night and make tents out of goatskins because that's where he was from. That was a trade that he had. And he did that so he wouldn't be taking their money from them lest they would think he was just doing it for the money. Paul worked night and day. And I will say to you, as a bivocational person, it is hard. But again, it refines. What are your motives? I work all day. And many times you can ask my wife, I come home and I'm done. Now I work at a desk job. I will admit that. I don't sweat outside and I don't uh, toil and labor in the heat. And I'm thankful to the Lord for that. I'm not very strong. Um, but that said, when I get home at night uh, and I 
minister to my family, I'm also preparing to teach. And I'm also looking at this building and thinking about when the grass is going to be mowed. And it's, it's just one of those things that God has me to do. And there was a season where I was a little bitter about it. So I'm like, Lord, I, I, you know me. I don't have this capacity. But as I've kept going and as I've been thankful and as I've been faithful and the Lord has reassured me like, hey, you don't have to remember all these things. I'll do it. The last few weeks, people have been mowing the grass. I haven't asked anybody. The last few weeks, people have been taking care of the stuff in the back and leading the children downstairs and all these other things that I never think about. And I'm thankful for that. But even if I had to do all of this stuff, what the Lord has shown me is that I need to keep going for the sake of the calling He's given me. I need to be thankful that we have these problems. God gave us this building. He's given me a group of people that will sit through and listen to me for more than 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. You know, even when I go long and they're gracious. Um, But the kingdom of God is growing and it's so worth it. If God has me work for the next 30 years full time and then do this too, so be it. That's what he's called me to. And I'm okay with that because I don't want anybody to come to this church and go, he's just in it for the money. Because if that was the case, I would have quit long ago, four years. And before that, youth group. You know, you can't pay somebody enough to lead a youth group. You can't. They're crazy, you know. You could offer them $100,000 a year, and it's not worth it. You know, kids are rough, but it is worth it for the sake of them knowing Christ, for the sake of them having a hope beyond YouTube and Facebook and whatever else they're into. You know, the, the reality is, is that everyone is serving idols until they come to know Christ. And at that point, we get to turn away from those things, those dead things. What I love about this is that Paul is willing to do what Jesus did for us, to serve and to sacrifice. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the first year that we were a church, every night I would quote this verse. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came to sacrifice himself for you and I. And he did that for the joy that was set before him, which was also you and I, while we were yet sinning against him. And so Paul says, you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we labored and toiled excuse me, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. So he says, God is our witness. He says, you are are our witnesses. You saw us. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So as we close, I want you to think about this. He's compared himself to a mother who nourishes and cherishes her children. And now he's referred to himself as a father in the faith. He says, here's what we did as a father. We exhorted. And the word exhort Uh, I've heard it said many times means to strongly encourage. 
But I looked up one word this week um, in the little thing that gives you the word definitions, the, the dictionary. And exhort, look at me, I'm learning things. Exhort actually means to call to one side and to encourage an individual. It means I call Steve and I say, hey, come on over here. And we talk for a little bit. And my goal is to encourage him, to lift him up, to, to, to give him an attaboy, but also to encourage him to keep going. Paul says, I did that among you. And then he says, I comforted. See, here's the deal. Many times as dads, uh, we want to encourage our kids. And most of the time it's like, how come you didn't do this? And we're like encouraging them to do it. But many times it means we need to go alongside them and do it with them for a little bit so they'll keep going. Another word he uses, we comforted. And this does not mean to coddle. Hey, you're doing great, even when they're not. Comfort doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, Comfort means to encourage someone to activity. Does that make sense? To want to do better. There are some Bible teachers I listen to, and I'm convicted. That's good. I I know I'm doing wrong, and so I want to change. But just by the way they communicate what they're teaching me, I get done and I've I've got a shot in the arm. I'm like, let's do this. I want to go out there and I want to practice what they've told me. Paul says, I exhort you as a dad, but I also comfort you. I want to press you on to good works. And then he says, we charged. And the word charged means he testified to them. He gave witness from personal experience. Um, I was, uh, I was in scouts for years, and one of the things that was part of a, an Eagle Scout ceremony was they would charge you. There would be a charge. You know, it's like, a, it's like right before you go out into battle. Okay, it's what they do at graduation speeches. You know, that somebody gets up and says, hey, I've been in the business world for years. Go get them. You know, and they tell you all these anecdotes and funny stories and things that have happened that have been kind of interesting. And, and then, but the main purpose of the speech is to say, you've graduated, you've arrived here, now go out and do what you've been taught to do. And so that's part of what Paul says he did. We conducted ourselves like a father conducts himself with children, exhorting, coming alongside, and encouraging, comforting, encouraging them not only in words, but also to do something, but then also he charges them. Now go out and go for it. He says, every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so let me ask you this morning, as we look at this passage, how is your conduct among those who believe? Are you pouring into other believers? Are you nourishing others by your faith and how you've grown and what you have to offer others? I think one of the ways that we grow the most is by not only learning the things and doing them ourselves, but then imparting them to the next generation of believers. Everyone has a Paul. Hopefully you have somebody that is your Paul, a father in the faith or a mother in the faith. But do you have a Timothy? You have a Silas. Do you have somebody that you're pouring into? Because if you do, they're going to ask you questions that will challenge you. They're going to ask you questions you don't know the answers to. And you're going to grow because you're investing in them as well. But also, as a father, are you, are you encouraged by someone and are you encouraging others? Are you encouraging others to action and what God's called them to do? Paul says, my conduct was so amongst you 
that I did these things. And what we read in chapter 1 is, by his example, they kept going. There was fruitful ministry that happened after he left. When you are involved in someone's life for a short time, is there fruit from that afterwards, even when you're not around anymore? I have to look back at my life and say, I don't know that I was doing any of these things. Many of the kids I had in youth group, I'm like, what in the world is going on? You know, um, we only get a short time with people, right? You ever shoot a bow and arrow? Like you put, you knock the arrow, you, you put it on the string, you pull it back. And for the time that you are pulling it back and releasing it, you have the ability to aim the arrow. But once it's released, it's going. So let me ask you, are you taking advantage of the time that you're knocked up with, that's the wrong phrase, (laughs) that you're connected with other believers? And (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Context, I hope nobody listens to that short portion. I mean, in our day and age, that kind of is what's going on, but anyway, did I turn red? No? Yeah? A little bit? All right, move on. My wife says move on. Um, We are connected with one another, like the arrow and the string. We are interdependent with one another, even though we are individuals. Let me encourage you. Let me come alongside you and spur you on, hopefully, to love people, to realize that we're all jacked up messes and to pour into one another and nourish one another. Uh, many times in conversations after church, and I don't mean just here, other churches I've gone to, there are ladies investing in one another and they're praying for one another. And as guys, we talk about sports or our oil change that we fouled up during the week, guilty, or you know whatever we did at work. And, and sometimes we need to take this time in our sanctuary time here and, and during the middle of the week and we need to Let God teach us things and then let him teach others through us. Share those experiences. Paul says, I I gave witness, I testified. If God's done something cool in your life during the week, let me encourage you to repeat it over and over again as if, tell people about it. They need to know that God is living, that he's active, and that he's still on the move. It will inspire others. So let's, uh, now that we've gone there and Uh, Let's just pray. Father, I thank you um, that Paul was a man of integrity. I'm sure he had things that he failed at. Uh, Many times he actually is very honest about them in these letters to these different churches. Father, I pray that as believers, that we would learn these lessons from Paul, that we would, like a mother, love and cherish one another and pour into one another and to share the truth with those that don't believe, um, that we would partake of the milk of the word and the meat of the word and that we would uh, let it have its perfect work done in our lives and then pour it into others so that they would be nourished and not poisoned. Lord, help us not to eat junk food during the week. Help us to, to live on the bread of life, to partake of the ever-flowing waters of everlasting life. And at the same time, Lord, as a father, help us to take on those characteristics as men and women to come alongside one another and spur one another on and encourage one another and also to share testimony and help us to provoke one another. 
not the way that the world provokes one another, not the way that even church people provoke one another by gossip and slander and sharing things that they shouldn't and, and not just praying about them and taking thoughts captive. As we interact with one another, Lord, help us to provoke one another, as Hebrews 10.24 says, to good works. Help us to be that annoying, uh, in a good way, person in, in someone else's life. If, if someone's amongst us, whether we're in the church or out of the church, and not being faithful to be obedient to the calling of the Lord on their lives, Lord, may each one of us be goads. May each one of us be irritants to that person until they change and and get right with the Lord and, and start walking worthy of the calling. Lord, you're coming back, and we don't know when that is. Help us to be about your business until you return so that when we see you, we're not surprised or scared or overwhelmed or hiding under a rock, so that when we see you coming, we just throw our arms up in the air and say, praise the Lord, here he is. He's coming for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for Paul's heart for the people. Give us that heart, please. Just as Jesus said, he said, unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and gives up its life, There could be no plant grow from it. There can be no fruit. Lord, help us to be willing servants. Help us to be willing to die to ourselves and to live for others for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.